Well, it, it uh, may not feel like it outside, but I don't think there's any doubt anymore that the Christmas season is now fully, fully upon us. We're singing Christmas carols at church. Um, the parties have started, right? I'm sure you are all now in the swing of the Christmas party season. Krista and I have had each of our staff parties has already happened. Um, we've had a Christmas party in our home. We've had already one of our family reunions is already done and behind us it's um, this is the season. You know, you're looking forward to getting together with family and having Christmas dinner together, which means that that all-important question that consumes us every year is already in the back of your mind, right? And you know exactly which question that is. It's um, what's my family going to fight about over Christmas dinner this year, right? Isn't that, I mean, isn't that the case, right? You get all these diverse personalities sitting around the table, all these strong opinions and all this stuff going on in the world. You're going to end up fighting about something. You have to, otherwise it's not Christmas dinner, right? It's like you have to have cranberry sauce from a can and you have to have a fight about something. Last time our family was together, like at Thanksgiving, um, the fight that we had, which we devoted several minutes to, was about the level of responsibility that the NFL ought to have for the concussions, for you know, the brain injury safety of its players. That, that was literally, we spent minutes, minutes discussing this. Um, whether they should be responsible or whether this is just occupational hazard and the players are responsible or whatever. This is what we do, right? This is what the holidays are all about, getting together with family and fighting about something dumb. So I don't know what it's going to be for you. There's lots of options this year, right? An American election, you could fight about Donald Trump. You could fight about the Syrian uh, refugees. You could fight about Justin Trudeau's nanny gate if you wanted. You could fight about how much uh, money it costs for a tax cut. You could... You could fight about all sorts of stuff, right? But the question, because that's at the end of the day what happens, and then not just with our families, it happens in environments like this too. You get a community of people together who love each other and who have strong personalities and strong opinions about stuff, and inevitably, the fight's going to break out. And the question now, close to the tail end of our Love Beyond Belief series, is what does, how do we handle those disagreements in a Love Beyond Belief kind of way? Because this is what we've been talking about, right? Love Beyond Belief has been all about how do we extend the love of Christ to people who see the world significantly differently than we do? Right? That's been the whole question on the table. How do we love people like Jesus even when they bring a radically different worldview than ours? Just believe differently, behave differently. How do we extend the love of Christ to them? And Jeff, in the first week, he called it kind of adopting the mind of Christ, who was full of both grace and truth, who was uncompromised in the way he did relationships, uncompromised in love, and uncompromised in convictions. And that's what we've explored in this series. Right? Two weeks ago, I talked about having uncompromised convictions about developing deeper and stronger convictions than we've ever held and learning to hold them in humility and love. And then last week, Jeff talked about the other side, the uncompromised love side of the equation. How do we, um, I, I, like it, I was just haunted last week by that drumbeat of passages that were all or nothing when it comes to love. You can know everything, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. The only thing that counts 
is that your faith expresses itself in love. They, my disciples, people will know my disciples by you know, how much they prove that they're right. No, by their love. The single and greatest and only command is to love. In fact, Jeff said last week that when it comes to uncompromising conviction, the strongest conviction we ought to have is that the whole thing is about love. Because that's what Jesus said. And so the question for this morning is, how do you take that uncompromising love and live it out in a world where these uncompromising convictions are coming into conflict with each other? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning by turning to the book of Romans. Excuse me. Because the Roman church is a church that understands conflict. I give you a little background to the Roman church. It was planted by a bunch of Jewish Christians who brought the good news about Jesus to the city of Rome. And these Jewish Christians founded a church based on their Jewish sensibilities, especially their commitment to obey the Mosaic law. They were committed Jews who believed in Jesus. And so they were committed to the three most significant issues out of the Mosaic law, law of Moses in the day, which was circumcision, which Jeff talked about last week, Sabbath days, and dietary food laws. Those were the three hot-button issues in Judaism in the ancient world. Because, for example, with Sabbath days, the Jewish culture was the only culture in the ancient world that took a day off from work. Every other culture worked seven days a week. The Jews worked six days because they considered the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to be holy. So on the Sabbath day, God rested from all of his labor. And so on the Sabbath day, they wanted to worship God by resting from their labor. So they took the Sabbath. It's what set the Jews apart from everybody else. That and their dietary restrictions. In particular, the Jews would never eat food sacrificed to idols, which is a problem in a city like Rome, a Gentile context, because the only meat that you can buy in the market is meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That's the only meat there is. That's how you deal with leftovers in a sacrificial temple systems. You sacrifice the animal, you eat a little bit, and you sell the rest in the market. That, that's how you get meat. It's the only way to get meat. And in a Gentile context, Jews, because they didn't want to participate in idolatry, and because the meat hadn't been prepared in a kosher way, um, they just didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so these Jewish leaders founding this Christian church, founded them on these Jewish principles that involved faith in Jesus and circumcision, Sabbath days, and food, no food sacrificed to idols. Right? But what happens is this. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicks all the Jews out of Rome. See, when, when the Jews arrived in Rome with the message of Jesus, there was about 13 synagogues at the time, about 50,000 Jews in the city. And some of those Jews were really, really open to this message about Jesus the Messiah. And some of the Jews really, really weren't. And they, historians tell us, ancient historians tell us, that the Jews in, in Rome started to fight about Jesus. And the fighting and the tension got so severe that Claudius was like, listen, you can't get along, everybody out. And he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. So what happens is, now you've got this Roman church, founded by Jews, founded on Jewish principles, and now there are no Jewish Christians in the entire church. All the leaders are gone, and what you have left are Gentile leaders to lead the community. Well, what do you imagine was the first order of business in their first membership meeting after all the Jews get kicked out of the city? Motion number one, 
Who says that we go back to working seven days a week? All in favor? Aye. Motion, second, carried. Perfect. Agenda item number two. Who says we go back to eating meat? Seconder? Perfect. Aye. Motion, second, carried. Done. Right? They're like Gentiles. Why are we holding to this stuff? We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. We follow Jesus, but we're Gentiles. These things are out. So five years later, and this is the thing, they, the Gentiles start leading this community. Five years later, Emperor Nero comes to the throne. He says, okay, everybody can come back to Rome. And these Jewish Christians who had founded this church are so excited to they get to go back and see what's happened to this church that they planted in Rome. And they get back there and they're horrified to discover that the whole place is in chaos. It's chaos. People are going to work on Saturday. They're bringing barbecued chicken to the church picnic. It's horrendous. And they're terrified and they're horrified. And, this, and they start fighting in the community. This tension becomes palpable. It seems almost to the point where the church was getting ready to split over these two issues. Of Sabbath keeping and food sacrifice to idols. That's how big and important. I mean, there are two, two of the Ten Commandments. These are massive issues, and it created massive tension in the community. And Paul writes this letter to the Romans in large part in order to address this issue. In fact, everything that Paul writes leading up to Romans chapter 14, where we're going to spend our time, is in some way focused on addressing this issue of the fighting and the tension in the community. And Paul writes this in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. This is Paul's contribution to the conversation of what do we do with all these fights, these differences of opinion. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. <clears throat> you can translate it in the Greek. You can translate the Greek. Uh, Paul is saying something really literally like, stop disputing over disputable matters. Right? Stop debating debatable stuff. Stop entering into conflict over conflicting opinions about these kinds of things. Now, I mean, I want to be clear right at the outset. Paul is not saying, don't talk about it. Right? Paul's not saying, don't talk about it. Paul's talking about it. He wants them to talk about it. I think Paul probably very deeply believes in a verse like uh, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. Where it says, as iron sharpens iron... So one person sharpens another. We need each other to sharpen each other, to sharpen our discipleship. We need each other to hone our followership of Jesus to a fine point. And, and how does iron sharpen iron? It sharpens it with friction and with heat and sometimes with sparks, right? Paul's not saying don't talk about it. What Paul is saying is, in how you talk about these issues, never, ever allow these to devolve into quarrels. Never let this devolve, degenerate into conflict. Where now, you know, relationships are being damaged and hurt people are hurting people and and the ugliness sets in. You all know what that line feels like when you have crossed between, over from a healthy conversation between two differing opinions and you cross into that ugliness of conflict where now relationship is being jeopardized and people are getting hurt. Paul says that stuff, that's got no place in the community of faith. None. <clears throat> I had lunch this week with somebody who wanted to talk to me about areas where we have differences of opinion. And I sat down to lunch, and they, she started to share 
what she was feeling. And she said to me, you know, Mike, she said, I was terrified to have you over to my house today. And I said, you were terrified. Why would you be terrified to have me over at your house? She said, because I was afraid to talk to you about this. I said, why would you be afraid to talk to me about this? And she said, because I was afraid that you were going to argue me into the ground. This is not a woman who I would consider to be a fearful woman, one of the strongest women I know. She was afraid that I was going to try and bury her with my arguments. Now, I don't know whether I create that perception or whether we somehow do as a church or whether that's just what we do in churches, but Paul says that kind of garbage has no place in the community faith. That's not how we relate to each other when we disagree about stuff. Paul says, in fact, the way you relate is, he says, accept one another. Accept the one whose faith is weak. That word accept is way too bland, by the way. Um, Accept sounds to me like tolerate. I can tolerate you. You know, I'll accept you. I'll kind of plug my nose and let you be a part of the club even though you believe all this stupid stuff and you behave in dumb ways you can still kind of be a part of us and whatever that's not what Paul is talking about at all in fact in Greek the word accept is actually lavish on them the generosity of hospitality welcome people with whom you disagree welcome them generously and lavishly into your home and into your life. Shower on them the kind of hospitality for which the ancient world was absolutely legendary. In the ancient world, hospitality was a sacred art. It was a sacred duty, literally a religious duty. And your obligation as a host was to shower on your guest um, luxury and and generosity literally beyond what you could afford. And so if you had a guest in your home, your obligation was to serve them a meal and their obligation was to eat it, but you would never serve them a meal with what you had in your house. You would go and, and, and go around the whole neighborhood. You know, so-and-so has the best china, and so you borrow the plates from them, and so-and-so's got a really beautiful water pitcher, so you borrow it from them, and This person's got the best crystal and that person's got the best silverware and that person has these amazing gold chargers and you go around and you gather the best from the whole neighborhood and I know that person has got this kind of food preserved and it's just the best I've ever tasted it. You literally go around and you borrow from everybody else the very best of everything so you can lay in front of your guests literally a level of generosity that you cannot yourself afford. And it's a way of saying to your guests, this is how honored I am that you would esteem me with your presence in my house and in my life. I don't deserve to have you in my life. It's a way of of demonstrating the the degree of, of dignity and esteem and worth that you are putting on the other person. A way of saying you are of insurpassable value to me. Paul says the only acceptable way 
for two people in the community of faith to relate to each other when they disagree is for each to lavish on the other a level of generosity and love that communicates that you, friend, though we disagree on what we believe and how we behave, you, friend, are of insurpassable value to me. That's how you behave. You invite them in with generosity and hospitality. I said, Krista and I already had a Christmas party at our house on Friday. We had had 30 people in our home, and they were people from all sorts of different backgrounds. There were work friends and school friends and neighborhood friends and church friends, and, and it meant that there were people from different ethnic backgrounds and different traditions and different religious backgrounds. There were, you know, Hindus and JWs and atheists. Our house was filled with the most, you know, it was a beautifully diverse gathering together. And guess what? Krista and I treated every single one of those people exactly the same. We greeted them at the home, at the door. We celebrated their presence. We welcomed them in and hopefully lavished them with generosity and love for the entire time that they were in our house, regardless of how much we agreed or disagreed about anything in life. Paul says, that's the way. It ought to be among you especially, he says, except the one whose faith is weak, especially when you're the one who's right. Right? I mean, it's hard to know ever fully whether I'm the one who's right or I'm the one who's wrong, but Paul says, even if you're like, you're the one who's right, you, that's especially your obligation, is to welcome them into your home and into your life with the lavish generosity of love without ever thinking That it's your responsibility to quarrel with them about the differences in what you believe. That's how you behave when there are disputable matters in the table. Now part of the problem, obviously, in the text is that Paul never tells us what what matters are disputable. Right? He never says, check the appendix of your Bible in in section 2, article 3, subsection S4, you know, you'll find a list of criteria. Those are the disputable matters. The other ones you can fight about to your heart's content. Paul never does that. And so what we end up in with the church is we end up with people who who, uh, basically gravitate towards one of two poles. Some people who think that everything's a disputable matter. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you behave, you know, it's kind of an I'm okay, you're okay sort of approach. And we never enter into conversation about any disagreement. And, and we miss out on the opportunity to sharpen each other's discipleship because we refuse, we're afraid or something to generate the heat, to generate the friction, to risk the sparks of having these sharpening conversations with each other. It's some people who don't bring up anything. And Paul is not like that. He's bringing it up here. But there are people who fall on the other side who think that everything is indisputable and that they're right about everything. And so it's their responsibility to correct everybody who disagrees with them about everything. (laughs) If we disagree about what to believe or how to behave, they're going to basically let you know that you're wrong and tell you what it would look like to be right. And neither one of those are what Paul imagined in the community. He imagines that in these disputable matters, we lavish each other with love and generosity as we have these conversations. So how do you discern what's a disputable matter? Paul never tells us. I don't know. I don't know. I guess we talk about it. And if there's a dispute about whether it's a disputable matter, I guess we err on the side of grace. Paul says, none of this fighting, none of it, has no place in the community of faith. He said, instead, your responsibility, 
This is what he fleshes out in the rest of the chapter. Your responsibility in these matters where there's disagreement in the community, you have two responsibilities, and they shouldn't surprise you if you were here last week. Your responsibility is to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. But what does that mean? What does it look like to love God in these sorts of scenarios? Well, Paul tells us, um, starting in verse 5, He says this, he says, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day like. He's talking about Sabbath days, right? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul says, you want to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Be fully convinced in your own mind about what you believe is true. Be fully convinced in your own mind about your own beliefs and about um, about how you think that God is calling you to behave. You have to be fully convinced in your mind. And we talked about this two weeks ago, so we're not going to drill down into this too deeply. But, you know, leaning into the scriptures in conversation with the community of faith and the traditions of faith, especially people who believe in Jesus but think differently than you to provide a broader perspective, leaning into reason and science so that if you had to explain what you believe to an atheist, even if they don't agree with you, it would make sense to them. Um, Leaning into your life experience. You know, some people say Jesus wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and that just doesn't make sense of my experience in life. Like leaning into the things that we talked about two weeks ago. Be fully convinced in your mind of what God wants you to believe and how God wants you to behave. Be fully convinced. It's an act of love because it's your way of saying, God, I deeply, deeply care about what you want me to believe and how you want me to behave. All I want to do is be faithful to what you want in my life. If you don't care enough to figure out what you believe about something, at some point you have to start to ask the question about whether you really care what God thinks, about whether that's really love for God. Now that is not to say, and I want to be really clear about this, being fully convinced is different than being certain. Right? Being fully convinced is different than being right. I can be fully convinced of something and be wrong. That, that doesn't, to Paul, in these disputable matters, that doesn't matter. It's not about being right or wrong. Paul, Paul says there are better and worse options when it comes to Sabbath days and food. But it doesn't actually matter. Being fully convinced is more important in these disputable matters than being right. We, we get it into our heads as evangelicals, I, and I think I've got some ideas about where it comes from, but we somehow believe that all of faith is about being right in what we believe and how we behave, that rightness is at the core of faith. And it's just not. It's just not. Um, you know, the, out of that mentality, this is where the fights come from. Because if rightness is at the core of your faith, then the person who's more right has a better faith. And the person who's more certain has a stronger faith. Right? But let me tell you something. There are Christians in the world, people who love Jesus with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, who don't even have a Bible in their own language. And when it comes to knowing the faith, when it comes to being right about what we believe, every person in this room knows 10 times more than they do. But there are people in this world who don't even have a Bible in their own language whose faith is 10 times stronger than anybody in this room because of the way they trust Christ and love God and love their neighbors. The core of faith is not rightness. The core of faith is loving God and loving your neighbor. And so Paul says, listen, 
your first responsibility is to be fully convinced about what you think God wants you to believe and what you, how you think God wants you to behave. And your second responsibility is to live consistently according to your beliefs. So Paul says in the next verse, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord, and they give thanks to God. Um, And then down in verse 23, he says this, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is what Paul says. Be fully convinced about what you believe and how you behave and then live consistently with those beliefs. If you believe that God says it's okay for you to eat meat sacrificed to idols, Right? or go to R-rated movies, or play hockey on Sunday, all the dumb stuff that we fight about in churches. If, God believes, if you believe that God says that it's okay, and you do it with a thankful heart, then you are being faithful to God. If you believe that God says that it's not okay, and so you abstain with a thankful heart, then you are being faithful to God. But if you believe that God says it's not okay, and you do it anyway, That's what the Bible calls sin. Because what you're saying is, I'm not sure God would be pleased with this, but I'm going to do it anyhow. I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do it anyhow. That sin is not eating or not eating. Sin in these disputable matters. Sin is violating your conscience. So I want you to hear this. What is sin for one person is not sin for another person. So just because it's sinful for you, let's just keep... I don't know, using R-rated movies. Just because it would be sin for you to go for an R-rated movie doesn't mean that you have to convince everybody else to stop going. It might not be sin for them if they're not violating their conscience. He says if you do it with a grateful heart. If you can thank God and go do it with a clean conscience, then that's not a sin. Which weeds out a tremendous... Like, I can't say that I'm thankful to God before stabbing my friend in the back, right? Like, that's just a preposterous notion. When it comes to the disputable matters, what it looks like to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength is to be fully convinced about how God wants you to believe and behave, and then to live fully consistently with your conscience. Don't let peer pressure force you to change your mind about what you believe or how you behave. Don't let inner people-pleasing pressure, uh uh-oh, it seems like everybody else believes or behaves differently than me. I'd better get with the program. Nope, don't do that. Don't let a persuasive and handsome teaching pastor who has rhetorical flair and flourish, you know, convince you to change your mind against you. Don't do it. Don't listen to a preacher. I've had people say to me in the last six months, you got to be careful what you say because people believe everything you say. Stop believing everything that I say. I told you 30% of everything I think is wrong. If you believe everything I say, you're choosing to be wrong at least 30% of the time. Stop believing everything that I say. Stop believing it just because I've said it. Right? Don't let me change your mind against your conscience. Your job is to be fully convinced about what you believe, which might be different than what I believe, and to live consistently with your conscience. That's what it looks like for you to be faithful in your love for God. Paul says, love God with everything you have. And then he says, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And here's what that looks like. Verse 2. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, and another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything 
must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. And who are you to judge someone else's servant? The word contempt, I looked it up in the Greek. The word contempt literally means that by your actions, you are demonstrating that somebody has no value to you. That you have no use for them. That actually, that they are worthy of mistreatment. Paul says you cannot look at somebody who believes and behaves differently than you on these disputable matters. You cannot look down your nose at them and say, well, they are just useless. And he says, and, and you can't judge them either. You can't criticize and find fault and, um, you know, condemn them and declare yourself to be the judge, jury, and executioner of their faith and of their character and whatever. You are not allowed to belittle and mistreat people because they believe or behave differently than you. Have you ever heard of that happening in a church before? Someone who gets belittled and mistreated because they believe differently than somebody else? Get run out of town, told they don't belong. Paul says that's preposterous and ugly and is disgusting and has absolutely nothing to do with the community of faith. He has already said that with those that you disagree, your only posture towards them is to generously and lavish them with the kind of love that says you are of insurpassable worth to me and I can't believe how fortunate I am to get to have you in my life. Paul says you you have to stop judging and then he says get out of the way of their faith. Um, Get out of the way of their faith. This is what it says in verse 13. It says, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another and instead make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Paul says you got to stop making it harder for other people to live faithfully with the convictions that they are fully convinced that God has for them of what they believe and how they behave. you got to stop making it harder. you got to stop putting pressure on them to change their mind and conform to your way of thinking. you got to stop <clears throat> behaving in front of them in a way that causes difficulty for them, flaunting your freedom in front of them when, when they think that something is sin and you don't and, or they don't believe something that you do and you just keep trotting it out in front of them to make them feel dumb or bad because they're different than you or whatever and you're shipwrecking their faith because of how you're treating them. You're making it harder for them to follow Jesus. Paul says, forget it. Stop making it harder for them to follow Jesus. Start making it easier. Become an ally of their faith. Help them, help them live a faith that believes and behaves differently than you. Be supportive of them. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, let us make every effort, this is what every effort in the community is supposed to do. It's supposed to lead to peace and to mutual edification. Edification just means to build each other up. Everything we do in the community with people with whom we disagree on what we believe and how we behave, everything we do is supposed to lead to peace 
and flourishing and it's supposed to build the other person up to make their faith stronger, bigger, fuller, sturdier, more solid, more full, more complete, more dynamic, to make it better in every possible way. You got to learn to become an ally to their faith, not by changing their faith so it looks like yours, by supporting them in the faith that they're fully convinced that God has for them. In fact, Paul says it's mutual edification, which means that you're coming into the relationship in humility, asking yourself the question, what do I have to learn from you that can make me stronger? How can I sit at your feet? How can I put myself under your example? And how can you help me become better at following Jesus? Friends, that's where uncompromising love and uncompromising convictions come together in the community of faith. In these relationships where we love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength by being fully convinced of what he wants us to believe and how he wants us to behave and then to live consistently and faithfully with what the Christian he's called us to be. And then to love everybody else as much as we love ourselves by excluding judgment and contempt and disdain, by only ever treating anybody as though they are people of insurpassable value to us. And then seeing what we can do to support them on their journey, which is different than ours. And to learn from them so that our journey can become better because of them. That's how love wins in the community. And I have a friend who's been in this church for a long time. who I've had a lot of these conversations with over the years who's been on a journey of discovering this love beyond belief kind of thing, um, grappling with it for himself in the last few years. And I would love for you to hear his story. So listen to this. 